With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everyone welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zimota and danny abdeljabar on today's episode we're we're joined by guest joseph salise mullen i pronounced that right i know i just asked you but i'm horrible with pronouncing names i mispronounce danny's <laughs> name all the time and we've been podcasting for three years you got it all right perfect who's a, a political scientist and um joseph you've written some really great stuff and you know, I've, I've learned a lot about China from you. Um, you know, you, you wrote this fantastic article on Mises.org called uh, China Won't Be Taking Over the World, which, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about, among other things. Uh, but you know, I just want to lead this off by just giving you my initial take on China, like my, my very high level take. And you can just kind of take the ball from there and tell me if you agree or disagree or, you know, whatever needs further explanation. But um, in the words of the late Justin Raimondo, um, you know, I believe China is a paper tiger. However, the narrative out there is, you know, China is on the verge of world domination. And uh, frankly, I, I just don't think that's true. I think that they have a lot of problems that prevent them from, you know, quote unquote, dominating the rest of the world. Not to say that they aren't a totalitarian government. I just don't think that they're about to... Uh, you know, uh, do a beachhead landing on the coast of, uh, you know, of, of California. So this so-called threat, this China threat, it just seems like a bunch of hype to me in my eyes. So if you could, I guess, you know, give your general take and kind of just, you know, expand on that and maybe even just kind of uh, tell us where your knowledge from China comes as well. Great. Uh, so I, I guess I'll start with the last one first. Um, as a political scientist, uh, I study a lot of different things. Um, I'm actually uh, back in graduate school now doing a, an economics degree at the University of Missouri. Uh, so I, I tend to throw a wide net, uh, but I read a lot. Uh, I read a lot. I usually plow through, you know, four or five books a week. Um, I read the whole spectrum as far as, I mean, I read like... <laughs> Uh, everything from the Jacobin to the National Review and everything in between. And so anytime something starts coming on the radar, especially the mainstream establishment publications, uh, I'm talking here about things like The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs. Anytime something starts showing up all the time, I just start getting books, just start getting books experts and and differing experts because of course i'm not the only one who has a bearish take on china you know there's very bullish takes there's that are very sober that are very sober um a lot of the stuff that you see in like for example uh, foreign affairs I, I don't think is is very sober um i think it's pretty um alarmist honestly and that's that's not confusing right uh not to be too cynical but like i do think we have to take into account 
If I hire you to work for my think tank and your job is to assess threats to U.S. hegemony uh, at the end of this unipolar moment, and you come back and you say, yeah, nothing's really going on. We're, we're in pretty good shape, actually. Okay, thanks, bye, right? Like, we're not going to sell any copy. The uh, military-industrial complex, which not to get... I, I know you talk about that on the show, but, like, that's who funds a lot of these think tanks. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon. Like, they're not interested in that. They're not going to hire someone to run the think tank if they don't share that same um, kind of hegemonic America is the indispensable nation worldview. So, on one level, it's not surprising because... You have to have an enemy worthy of justifying the military budget that we have. And I do want to touch on our military budget because I do think there's a little bit of, I don't know, public overconfidence. Because you see the graphic put around all the time. It gets memed on social media. Like, uh, the U.S. spends more on the military than the next uh, million countries combined, you know. And it's like, well, that doesn't mean... A lot um, as audits of the Defense Department have shown like we overpay for a lot of things and I know you guys did an right. episode on the f-35 so right. <laughs> um, our, our favorite plane your favorite plane I know because uh, it's our just favorite phenomenal. Plane. I mean it's a world-beating aircraft you know? the, the way I look at it the more expensive something is the better it is it's got to be our motto that yeah that's, that's yeah, there was actually a guy uh, who was writing, uh, he wrote a book, uh, Losing Military Supremacy, where he basically broke down just how bad a deal we get. And uh, one of the things that stuck out to me is he said, if you ever read like the copy, like the press stuff that they put out, they always use the word sophisticated. It's so sophisticated. And he said, you listen to the, the dialogue in other military industrial defense circles in like Russia or China, that word is never used. Sophisticated is never used. Efficient. Efficient is used. Practical, sure. capable, those words are used, but those aren't words that appear uh, when you see them advertising, uh, you know, whatever new toy they have that, you know, has a million different parts that aren't compatible and, you know, need upgrading. And, you know, it's a cash cow, obviously. And uh, that's because there's no serious threat. No one at the Pentagon would actually put up with this if we had a serious threat on the horizon. It would be about what is capable of getting the job done. But we really don't face any existential threats. And so it's and so it can just be a raid on the treasury. Well, devil's advocate here. What about um, the idea that uh, you know people value things more when they're just more expensive, regardless of what the actual inherent value of the thing is? As an example, you know you might care for a pair of Ray Bans a hell of a lot more than you would you know a cheap ten dollar pair of sunglasses that you pick up you know on a street corner at a vendor or something like that. What what if, what if we're just paying more so that we can care more about our stuff? Uh, I, I mean, I think there's there's some <laughs> some something to say for that, but I would just say that in this case, lives are on the line, right? right. And it's not their money; it's the mm -hmm. public's money. If you choose to spend that money on Ray Bans because you want to like signal your status or something, or you just like paying more for stuff, you feel better <laughs> knowing that you paid a lot more than you needed to for something that could have gotten the job done a lot cheaper. Right, that's a right. you decision, and I'm fine mm -hmm. with that. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Great, you know, it's your money, but it's not their money. It's not their money, and that's the problem. It's a fair point. And, and lives are on the line. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, totally. When, when you can't eject safely out of an airplane that's going to get shot down if it gets into some kind of dogfight or skirmish, which I know it wasn't designed for dogfighting, so like I don't right, dog right. on the F-35 too much for that. It's not meant for that. But like if, for whatever reason, the pilot has to eject, even for like a mechanical issue, which is probably right, the more right. likely scenario, it's going to kill the guy. Right. Someone's right. son or daughter is going to mm -hmm. die. 
Right. Um, right. So Lockheed Martin's share price could get boosted. Right. No, I'm with you. I'm obviously being facetious. I think that we, it's almost criminal with, how much I am money familiar with, with, we spend. With your, uh, with your rev chart, so. And <laughs> Yeah, um, but to that point, you know, if you're right, you know, um, if an F-35 went into a dogfight with, um, you know, a Russian, um, why is the name escaping me? What? Sukhoi. Yeah, the Sukhoi, the Russian Sukhoi, that pilot would be dead. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we're getting a little Not bit- like that that's going to happen, but that pilot would be dead. <laughs> I think we're getting a little bit off topic. Uh, uh, if we could come back to China for a moment, um, I know that yeah, you, you were just getting through right, your so analysis China, so there. So China is ultimate. Is China is you know the ultimate boogeyman. Um, they seem they're they're like a perfect reason to you know justify spending. You know you see a lot of the narrative right. There's a narrative coming out right now that um, you know with the withdrawal from the Middle East and overall you know I feel like there is a, you know a withdrawal in you know the Muslim world at least um, Afghanistan and, and Middle Eastern countries, but you know, a lot of since the war on terror is, I guess, essentially kind of like the gig is up. You know, people have found out that this thing is all just cronyism. Um, there needs to be a new enemy. So I guess why do you think China kind of fits that description so well? Because it's a it's a relatively powerful country. I mean, it's you know, I don't know that I agree that it's a it's a paper tiger. I think they have a lot of problems, but certainly they will be a regional hegemon. Um, I, I don't think that they'll be able to do whatever they want, they're, they're going to have to negotiate with countries like India, Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan, Korea, Ta- you know, not Taiwan, sorry, uh, Vietnam. <laughs> um, yeah, which Taiwan is not a country, right? This podcast won't be aired in China if I say that. Hey, we, 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 don't, we don't do the John Cena podcast. The John Cena podcast, right, right. <laughs> what was I saying? I don't know what I was thinking there. Uh, no, so uh, yeah, China, up and coming, doing well. Uh, you know, I, I certainly would like the Chinese people to have a good life. I mean, they had an awful century. I mean, when Mao finally, thankfully departed this world, I mean, that country was just, I mean, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I wouldn't. And so I want the Chinese people to have a good life. Uh, unfortunately, the CCP have certain incentive structures that they face that I think could be problematic. And some of their social engineering experiments have created a population dynamic that I think is probably the strongest case the Hawks have uh, for China being a threat uh, to regional uh, security there. We'll talk about that, of course, but uh, no, I mean, China's economy will surpass the United States. It's more heavily involved with trade than the United States. More countries now, tra- a lot more countries are more trade dependent with China than the United States. And 20 years ago, that just wasn't the case. But there's been there's been a real reversal on that. Actually, uh, Tom Philippin, uh, I think I'm saying his name right. He's a, a French central banker, but he actually wrote a book called uh, The Great Reversal, where he basically spelled it out for us that the United States has been going full steam away from free markets and world trade for the past 20 years, uh, whereas China has been doing the opposite. And in terms of having to negotiate with their neighbors and not just, you know, go around invading everyone, that's all their supply chains right there. They're heavily, heavily trade reliant with all of those countries. So China, I'm sure we'll talk about Taiwan at some point. But I, yeah, I, I do. I but I just don't see them posing a military threat to, you know, countries like Japan, countries like Indonesia. Obviously, they have border clashes with India up in the mountains. I, I don't really know what to make of that. I, I honestly don't spend a that street much time. fight. They literally hit each other with sticks on the borders. I mean, that was just brutal. 
Yeah. Um, you're talking about the one where the Indians got killed. Yeah. Yeah, the ones where they took but sticks with, like, and they sticks. started. Yeah. Yeah, that was brutal. <laughs> but you know. So yeah, I think that China makes a great, and of course, you know, it's the world's largest dictatorship. Mm-hmm. You know, I run in a lot of like financial and economic circles and, you know, everyone talks about this great emerging market, you know, purchasing power parity. And it's like, let's not forget, this is the world's largest dictatorship here. Like you will be thrown in prison. Like they are rounding up ethnic minorities and throwing them in. I don't know. What do you guys call that on your podcast? Concentration camps. <laughs> vocational camps. They're learning skills. That's what they call them, vocational camps. But you have to like uh, obey the rules and read the Mao stuff before they'll even train you. Right. Uh, but yeah. So yeah. Oh, there's so many things to unpack there. Uh, where do we even start? Uh, well, if you want, I, I could just really quickly lay out basically like kind of the four or five things. I've got this pretty streamlined now to just kind of okay. lay out what I see as China's fundamental weaknesses. Sure. Okay. Because a lot of the alarmism uh, revolves around the fact that like, China is going to paint Central Asia red, and then they're going to be on the march through the archipelago and into the Pacific Ocean, and the U.S. is going to be boxed out of the region. Don't think that's going to happen, and here's why. So the countries that ring it are all industrial powers, and they have historic grievances against China. I'm talking about primarily Japan, South Korea, uh, India, Vietnam, uh, the Philippines, Malaysia, All those countries, they have no interest in being dominated by China. And I do want to talk about this later in the context of the unipolar moment, but that's one of the reasons I don't think China can play the role that the U.S. has been playing. Because none of them would be cool with China having a base in their country. None of them want China's destroyers, you know, like cruising around their shores. They don't want that. Uh, Understandably so. Uh Internally, you know, it's got a lot of a lot of issues in terms of uh, it's a huge food importer. It's a huge fuel importer. So it, it can't upset the balance too much because it's so heavily reliant on imports. So, you know, a large scale war would seriously interrupt that and cause a huge famine, basically. I mean, it would, it would kill a lot of people and that would that would totally delegitimize uh, the CCP, uh, especially if the United States isn't seen as, you know, pushing the CCP. Uh, so let's see, uh, demographically, so social engineering wise, the one child policy. So that created a massive imbalance, uh, based on selective sex abortion. They've got, you know, tens of millions of young men who, when the bubble finally bursts, aren't gonna be able to find a job or a wife. That's a huge problem. And this is where I think the Hawks have their best case, which is that China is going to need to get rid of some of these people. And so they're just, they'll throw them into a conflict with Taiwan. You know, maybe it'll take a million, maybe it'll take a million troops. And Taiwan, (laughs) I have five kids, so bear with me here. Uh, I I see Taiwan as like a Lego. Have you ever stepped on a Lego? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Okay, okay, great. Taiwan is the Lego. And it's on the floor. And China's going to stomp repeatedly on this Lego. And it's going to hurt a lot. But like, I don't know, eventually the Lego... You know, obviously the Lego isn't uh, sentient, so that kind of falls apart there. But you get my idea. Like, eventually, if they're willing to sacrifice enough people, if the Chinese are willing, the Chinese people are willing to bear those costs, you know, they've got the people to do it. Um, And China recently, uh, a couple of years ago, reversed the one-child policy. And I had a lot of people saying, well, now they're going to even out their population and stuff. And it's like, 
why would you think that? Why would you think that just because the government says, you can have more children now, that people are going to just be like, oh, well, now I'm going to have more children. What other industrializing or industrialized country saw their birth rates go up as they transitioned from an agricultural to an industrial society? The answer is zero. Zero. Because, I again, I have five kids, and we spent one year in an apartment between houses, and it was awful. It was awful. No one wants to raise a bunch of kids in a tiny little apartment in one of China's major industrial hubs. No one wants that. They don't want kids, especially, uh, you know, as you gain more income, uh, you know, high white collar work, like they just have fewer kids and the Chinese are ordinary human beings. So I don't see them being like, well, the party said I can have more kids. So now I'm just going to have a bunch of kids. No, not at all. Uh, if anything, they'll just want to spend more money on themselves, right? Naturally to raise their standard of living. Uh, do, do, do. let's see. Uh, yeah. So, uh, oh boy, economically. Okay. So this is where I think a lot of the angst comes from because China's economy is growing a lot, but like, let's just keep this in perspective here. GDP wise. Sure. Purchasing power parity. They passed the United States. Okay, cool. Uh, their GDP is still like $10 trillion, uh, dollars. Uh, no, seven, seven trillion dollars smaller than the United States. And on a per capita basis, China's income per capita uh, by GDP, GDP per capita, I'm sorry, is $10,000. Okay, the United States is $65,000. They're wildly less efficient. They have a billion people still producing way less stuff than the 300 or so million people that we have. And China's total factor productivity has been flatlining for a while. And that's why the CCP is so interested in automation, quantum computing, AI, is, is they want to get more productive. Understandable, great. Um, but debt, so markets. Markets are great because markets, when they're working properly, are supposed to weed out bad investments. And <laughs> I do want to talk about the recession that destroyed uh, the first Bush's uh, re-election campaign because what that taught everyone was that doing the right thing economically and causing a recession so that things could reset is politically toxic and now no one will do it. And so the Fed jumps into like overdrive mode and pumps the money full of the economy full of money, right? Mm -hmm. The CCP makes, and Scott Horton gave me this this line, but like the, the CCP, the Chinese Central Bank, make the Federal Reserve look like the gold standard of central banking. Citigroup released a report showing that until this past year, when, when the pandemic caused the Federal Reserve to jump into overdrive again, they were creating five times the money supply of the Federal Reserve per month. They were responsible for 80% of all credit creation globally. And a lot of people make a big deal about the fact that China's public debt is really small, really small. You know, uh, you know, I, I had it written down here like two trillion dollars. Okay. But their corporate sector debt, their, you know, quote unquote, private sector debt, which we all know that these corporations are just extensions of the Communist Party. Right. They're in debt way over their heads, way over their heads, to the point that The Economist ran a leader in this week's uh, issue about China's enormous debt debacle that's impending. Their debt to GDP ratio is just under 300 percent. And over half of it is short-term debt. And if you know anything about debt rollovers, it's very, very sensitive to any changes in interest rate. So the CCP basically can't tighten monetary policy. Okay, because it, it would just cause servicing all of these bad debts, which three quarters of new loans in China are created simply to pay interest on existing loans. Oh boy. 
Oh, boy. Yikes. And so the Belt and Road Initiative, I just want to touch on this real quick because I wrote an article, I think, last year about it for, for the Mises Institute, where I said, look, the Belt and Road, really, its most important role right now, because everyone's like, supply chains, domination. It's like, no, what it is, is you're creating more demand for Yuan, for renminbi. And you're creating a market, so you lend them the money, which is a huge problem for a lot of these countries because they got used to dealing with the United States or the Russians who just give you dollars or rubles or whatever. The Chinese want this money back and that's causing problems with like a loan. Pakistan's like a loan? What is a loan? I'm not sure what you mean. Don't you just give me this money? No, no. And if you don't pay it, we get your port and no, that's not going to happen. But anyway, so basically uh, you need a market to dump your overproduction. You need places to shove more of the renminbi you have to keep creating to keep this bubble going so uh, that's one of the reasons that i think i again i wrote another article uh some time ago about why the yuan uh wouldn't supplant the dollar and it's because the ccp doesn't have that on the agenda right now because to take the role of the dollar as the central world reserve currency you'd have to open up your capital accounts which china has no interest in doing they tried doing that and then quickly retreated um they don't they want to know where all the yuan are going they want to have control over who gets them and that's not how it works it's on demand dollars when you want them however much you want them and that's it and china has no interest in that so right now i think you know the the belt and road initiative really serves as as a temporary solution to a domestic political and economic crisis that's that's coming you know and i know china bears have been saying for a decade that the bubble's going to pop the bubble's going to pop it is going to pop. It just hasn't popped yet. Like, congratulations to them. It's going to be an even bigger crisis when it comes. Like, <laughs> just delaying the inevitable. You're just delaying the inevitable. You're just building a bigger crisis. Like, did you learn nothing? Which is shocking because they were so upset with the United States in 2008. They were so upset. It's like, you're doing the same thing, only worse. Like, you have so many non-performing loans. Like, the low number that I saw for non-performing loans that China is hiding away in its banking system right now is $7 trillion worth of bad loans, non-performing loans. Put this in perspective for you. In 2008, the US, uh, when the subprime blew everything up, uh, that was about $1 trillion. That's what $1 trillion in non-performing loans looks like. So $7 trillion. So there you go. This is going to be orders of magnitude bigger. So for me, I conclude my article by arguing that being confrontational with China only will serve to give the CCP a crutch. Because when it all goes to hell in a handbasket, they can point to the U.S. lurking offshore with their carrier strike groups and, you know, uh, you know, waging economic warfare and tariffs and stuff. They're going to be able to say, the Americans did this to us because they don't want China to take its proper place in the global world. They don't want to share the stage with us. And they're right. They're right. So, so you're, you're proposing a more laissez-faire approach to China. The okay. correct answer is do nothing. China is blowing itself. The CCP is blowing itself up. Absolutely. What, didn't Sun Tzu once say, never get uh, in the way of uh, an enemy who's making a mistake or never interrupt an enemy who's Since making a mistake? I was in like high school, but that sounds like something he would say. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I do that. That's the, art, the of war. art of war. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny about this? It, it kind of It's kind of uh, similar to when the U.S. will, you know, like the Cuba protest or um, Juan Guaido or sanctions on Venezuela. Um, socialists will be like, well, you know what? The reason why these countries are failing economically is because of the U.S. sanctions. So U.S. sanction kind of serves as a talking point 
um, for those economic policies because then they can go back and say, hey, what? well, it's not that the economic system is, is failing. It's it's because of the U.S. sanctions. It's U.S. foreign policy. That's why we're in this predicament. It has nothing to do with, like, you know, our own policies. Um, so I guess you're saying that this same um, – if the U.S. you know does you know uh, puts more sanctions on China, that they'll use that as a way to justify or to explain you know the own crises of their own making. Oh, absolutely, and you—that's a brilliant point. I hadn't even thought about that, but Ru- but Putin did the same thing. You know, the Russian economy is struggling because the Americans are applying sanctions, and mm-hmm. you know, absolutely. And you know, the domestic people will say, uh, "Well, socialism isn't working because the U.S. is just waging economic warfare on these countries." Right. It's like, yeah, I'm sure they'd be doing a little better, but like, it wouldn't be a utopia. Like, <laughs> and it's not just socialist countries; it's also just anyone. You know, Iran is a good example. North yeah, Korea exactly. Is a good Iran's example. a great example. You know? That it only serves, and it's like the whole idea of sanctions. The the whole principle behind sanctions is like you don't history at all, do you? You really don't, because if <laughs> no. you look at how the West developed, what eventually toppled the old orders was a wealthy and independent middle class like you need to get rich right what is it uh, right. the, the the hierarchy of needs right mm-hmm. if you don't have a full belly if you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from if you're worried about your kids not having access to medicine you could care less about what kind of government you have you actually become more reliant on the government to help you that's right there's no one else to help you so we're just going to make what these countries mm-hmm. so miserable and kill so many people like Iraq in the 1990s. Like, mm-hmm. we're just going to kill so many people that eventually they'll just throw off Saddam, which uh, I, I think we're going to come back to that, actually, in, in the context <laughs> of the unipolar moment, because that, that's just outrageous. But probably, yeah, probably. yeah. But it's just like, and the thing is, is these are smart, smart people. Like, you look at their credentials, the people who write for these think tanks, the people who write for these publications, like, I know that they know this stuff. And that's why I, I brought up the, the, the incentive structure that they face. If you will not say these things someone else will right right someone else will and there's a lot of money to be made saying what what needs to be said to continue justifying a trillion dollar a year industry making war it's it's nuts um well i took some notes while you were talking and you know you you said you've got it down to four succinct points and I, i want to review them again and then i want to just like maybe poke into them a little bit more get a little bit more beef out of it so you said the first one is uh, what I'm going to classify as a geopolitical issue that's, you know, all the countries around it don't want China to dominate it. And then you pointed out some internal issues. So like it's a domestic issue, you know, they're huge food importer, et cetera, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then you talk about demographics, talking about like lots of young men and women, mostly men, uh, who need jobs and somehow they're going to have to figure that part out. Uh, and the last one, which you went into great detail on actually was the, uh, economic, um, uh, components of it, you know, talking about how, while they might have, uh, might surpass us in some time for purchasing power. Uh, you know, if you run the numbers on the per capita basis, doesn't look so great, not very efficient. And, you know, they make the fed look great. So, um, I want to talk first about that first one. So, you know, you said, you know, all the countries around it are strong industrial powers with no interest in being dominated by China. And you also expounded on the fact that nobody wants China's military assets in their country, right? A very reasonable, you know, um, uh, uh, thing. So I wonder, you know, on that point, 
maybe we can talk a little bit about China's military because I think at least part of the reason why we get a chance to put our bases everywhere is because we are so militarily powerful, or at least have been historically, and that's just how we and that's just how we ended up being. There are other reasons, of course, as well. Sometimes there's mutual symbiosis going on, and honestly, sometimes we just bully them into it. Um, but talking China's military power, some people claim that their traditional military and Navy and Air Force might not be up to spec. Uh, we do plenty of episodes on this, doing some comparisons. But um, one thing that kind of stands out as a potential threat is their missile technology uh, and the fact that it could put them at a technical or competitive advantage against major military powers in, in like a conventional warfare setting. How do you think they stack up there in, in the military? And do you think that they pose any threat to anyone militarily? Taiwan. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. They pose no threat to the United States. Oh, naturally. <laughs> they pose no threat to the United States. Um, uh, it, I, honestly, I think a lot of it depends on the bellicosity of its neighbors, quite frankly. Uh, Japan has been rearming. They've had issues with India historically, 60s, 70s, recently. I mean... It's not as though any of their neighbors are wildly well-armed, top-notch military powers. So it's not like they'd be going toe-to-toe with the United States. Mm -hmm. So, sure. And yeah, in terms of ballistic missile technology, I think that was one of the smartest investments they made. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Why spend $15 billion or however much these you know new carriers cost mm -hmm. when... We saw in the um, oh, what was the war game that uh, that got played? Where uh, the Millennium Challenge. The Millennium Challenge. That's what it was. Oh, and the uh, guy Scott who was Knight. playing, not, uh, Piper? And the guy who was playing, mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't Iran. It was like a made-up country. It was Iran. Let's be real. <laughs> it was. It was like it was. It was a anonymous country in the Persian Gulf. Right. Right. And what did he Wait, do? Uh, he literally just fired a bunch. Of, he calculated how many missiles could it possibly intercept. Okay, I'll just fire a few more. Boom. Done. Piece right. cake. How much do those missiles cost? Fraction. Fraction what those carriers cost. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Great investment. No, I, yeah, I, it's, it's, yeah. it's smart. Yeah, they were able to win with also just like uh, they put some uh, suicide bombs on some on some boats. Um, and they were what? They sunk those ships in what? In a couple of minutes? We did a, a whole episode on this a while back. And yeah. I forget the exact how long it took. But it was almost instant. Literally it was called almost the Millennium instant, Challenge if instantly. you want to check it out. Yeah, but then, yeah, but then, I mean, then they like be like, oh, that's not fair. Um, there's a uh, rule. Yeah. They respawn them. <laughs> they respawn. They respawn. Yeah. Yeah. They respawn them like in a game of Halo or something like that. They literally, it's like, oh, well, well, you know, we weren't expecting that. So let's just, let's just start over. And then they try to cover it up. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely, I mean, I think that's great. And I mean, their 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 uh, coastline uh, facing the South and East China Sea are stacked, stacked with missile batteries. And I mean, yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, you saw it actually. Uh, goodness, this was... Oh, this was a few years ago now, but it was during the Syria conflict. Russia, you, Russia made a missile strike, and, and the U.S. was just not prepared for the range that it had, and it wound up moving its uh, its ships back from where they were in the Gulf. And so, so I mean, the U.S. military is aware mm-hmm. that, like, you know, billions of dollars worth of defense systems, like, all it takes is one getting through, and it's over. Right. right. I mean, or even mining, even mining. Mm-hmm. Um, Moored mines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, you you touched on, and you said pretty pretty emphatically that Taiwan is in danger, uh, and you also said on Scott's show that there's a possibility that um, that China might have domestic and political incentives to invade Taiwan. We've actually done an episode on this, and and at least personally in my research, it seems that China invading Taiwan is a bit easier said than done from a logistical and a and a geopolitical standpoint. Do you really think that they would? And if they did, how do you think they'd pull it off? You know what? I, I listened to that episode. As I said, I went back and, and found all your China-related episodes. I really love the one about like the creation of the Chinese people, which I think is great. Uh, oh, thanks. We'll try talk about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it's great, because there's so much mythologizing that goes on in, in the CCP propaganda. But no, look, I think you were spot on in that episode. It is so much easier said than done. But it's really about how much you're willing to bleed for it. Mm-hmm. And if internal CCP polls and stuff are to be believed, you know, they have all of their, you know, media mouthpieces. Like, if it's to be believed, like, a very high percent, like, well over 60%, 70% are like, no, we want Taiwan back and we want it, like, pretty much right now. Like, we've had enough waiting around. You know, it's mm-hmm. been how many years since the three communiques and the Shanghai? And it's been, like, 50 years. And Kissinger had said, oh, yeah, you'll have Taiwan back in, you know, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, and the CCP is like, okay. We're ready. And it's been 30 to 40. <laughs> Tapping the watch. And the and Taiwan's politics have been going in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I don't see... Ah, uh, boy. I mean, yes. Everything you pointed out in that in that podcast episode, if you want to, like, refresh the, the, the listeners on that, you'll do a better job explaining your case <laughs> to me. But I thought you were spot on. Like, it will cost a lot. Yeah. It will yeah. cost a lot for all the reasons that you said, but they have the population to expend on it. Mm. Um, and you know that the CCP does not care about loss of life. Yeah. And, that, like, and that's the that's population the, that's will the, suffer it. Yeah. But that's the one point that I admittedly I, I know, you know, is a strong case to be made for China actually going forward with it. But, the, you know, the, the TLDR version or TLDW didn't. Oh, TLDL. TL, too long. Didn't listen. Uh, version of the podcast uh, was that. The biggest issues around China invading Taiwan is that you don't, you need thousands and thousands of troops, millions even. Uh, and if you move around, in order to do that, you have to stage them all on the beachheads. They'd see them coming for weeks, if not months on end. So Taiwan would be able to prepare for that. Taiwan's already been heavily investing in, in their military infrastructure. So they already know approximately where that these people are going to land unless they like, you know, 
come out of the ground or something like that. You know, they know where they're going to come. They've already armed it up. It's it's they're ready to fight. Um, and you know, additionally, uh, just the, even Chinese internal memos say if the, if this takes more than two weeks, we're going to lose. We're not going to win. And you know, there there's a lot of suspicion that. Uh, they're not going to be able to make it <laughs> to last the two weeks. Um, and then there's the geopolitical components of it. Like, does the U.S. get involved? Does Japan get involved? You know, Japan definitely doesn't want them to have bases on Taiwan because that makes that puts them in a, you know, militarily precarious position for the South China Sea issues, you know. So there's a lot of factors that are going against them on that. But you're absolutely right. They do have a lot of people, and I don't. I, maybe they can stomach loss of human life a lot more than the U.S. That can. would be just one hell of a meat grinder. Yep. Like we're talking about just what t- tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. dying on that. Lots and lots and lots. Yeah. Just and, well, and, and the thing is, is that's why I point to their domestic political incentives, hmm. because the CCP actually knows because of how. I mean, they basically control the corporations. They control the lenders. I mean, it's the, the relationship is complicated, but it's that that's really not important. They know what is going on in the economy more so than probably any country on earth. So right. they know what their situation is. And you know that because they've tried taking steps to address things. They've been trying to like game solutions and work things out. And like it, you just can't, you just can't stop it. They wanted to stop it. They wanted to deflate the housing bubble. You know, she has been, you know, making a big deal about houses are for living in, not for investing in, you know, and it's like, well, it's already here, you know. And so if they know economic crisis is coming and it's coming, you know, say in six months, they'll know up six months ahead, probably, you know, or whatever, (laughs) then they would they would be looking for a way to rally the country to its cause. And so maybe you'd get some kind of like false flag operation like, uh, you know, have one of their, like, literal ships or, or like, you know how they violate Taiwan's airspace all the time? Yeah. Maybe they could, yeah. like, mock up, like, uh, one of our jets was shot down by a Taiwanese battery. Mm-hmm. You know, this is war. Right. You know, and, like, right. let's be realistic here. The Chinese people, like, you know, I mean, they're, they're, I don't know exactly what. I mean, shit, we do it too. So let's just put it that way. We do it too. And our population (laughs) has way more access to information than them. Like WMDs much. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. Like they could convince the population that like this was an act of war. Japan is not ready for it. Japan's Mm -hmm. not ready to to go toe to toe with China. Uh, I've thought a lot about how the rest of the world would react. And that I think is is complicated because I, I look at Russia and Russia made its moves, and they were prepared. They had, they had socked away a lot of savings from the commodity price boom during the early 2000s, so they knew. They knew some sanctions were coming, so they had built up a nice, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of, worth of supplies there in, in terms of money, uh, and, you know, they fed it out in terms of, like, more pensions, more, pro, you know. Uh, but at the end of the day... There was only so far Germany was willing to go with natural gas on the line. Mm. And I look at the rest of the world and it's like, boy, China is really, China is so much more important to the global economy than Russia. Like orders of magnitude more important. And like, how much is Germany willing to rock the boat of that relationship over a territory that the UN does not recognize? And that if you even call it a country or recognize it, China will have nothing to do with you. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and they've got it on paper, you know, from a U.S. administration that that is theirs. 
And I really hope the U.S. takes no part in that. Honestly, it would be a disaster. Like nothing would destroy the credibility of U.S. security guarantees like trying to intervene, I, I think. I mean, it depends on how far the, the CCP was willing to go, but. You know, what's interesting. You know, what's interesting. So back in the day, um, Gareth Porter came out with this article about probably about a month ago. It was from a Daniel Ellsberg leak. And basically the crux was, I forget the exact, you know, exactly what the leak was, but it was something along the lines that the Taiwanese were trying to uh, drag the U.S. into like a false flag uh, to go to war with China. And um, there was um, like the U.S. was considering nuking China at that time. Like that was an option that was presented to Eisenhower. So it was kind of funny that you, know, you bring up like the, you know, the, 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 the false flag angle. But right now, I've kind of agreed, well, not right now, but over like the past couple of decades, I've kind of agreed with like the U.S. policy of like the strategic ambiguity. That's, that's kind of the term that they use, right? Like, we're not going to really just put our cards on the table. We're not going to tell Taiwan, nor we're going to tell China exactly what we're going to do. So neither of them, so both of them are confused and both of them won't, will, you know, won't jump the gun and do something stupid. So... Like, do you see that policy changing right now? Or, or like, do you really think that the U.S. would actually send troops to China, to Taiwan uh, and, and risk getting into, you know, a possible nuclear war? I hope not. I really do. I really hope not. I, I don't know that troops... I was thinking more like a carrier strike. Not troops, not but, thing. but military assets. Yeah, I, military assets. And then again, you know, it comes down to... This is this is part of China and the UN recognizes that. And so like you're intervene you're going to intervene in an internal Chinese political military conflict here. Boy. We did it in Ukraine. We do it everywhere. What? <laughs> yeah. It, Russia is not China though. Russia, mm. you know, and it was right in Europe's backyard. I I don't know. I just, I don't really, I, I see the comparison. I just don't love it because China is just different. China is different from Russia. And uh, because I mean, I think, I think honestly, the Europeans would be fine handling Russia on their own. Like, I'm glad to see Emmanuel Macron uh, taking such a strident lead and saying like, no, we can take care of ourselves. Europe can take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, maybe this is just French hubris, you know, wanting to be like masters of the continent again. And like, I'm fine with that. Right. I'm fine with that. It's a huge bill. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the United States, whatever you want to say about, you know, global security arrangements, it's incredibly expensive providing that public good. If you consider it a public good, that's how the literature depicts it. Um, yeah. So I, obviously this is all speculation. I don't know. I really hope that the thing the thing for me is like i feel like china is willing to wait so long as domestic political and economic circumstances don't put them in a situation where they need to do something drastic to maintain their legitimacy so as long as the economic situation is okay and the employment situation is okay and like when i say okay like i do think they're in like the midst of several crises here but they're mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. honestly good for them they're doing a pretty good job managing it they're doing a pretty good job managing things but uh, yeah, that that for me is the biggest concern uh, is that because otherwise time is totally on their side. Time is totally on their side. They are definitely going to get stronger as time goes on. And I mean, 
you know, the U.S. is going to get less relatively preponderant. You know, the whole America is in decline and stuff. It's like, we're not in absolute decline. We're, we're even more powerful than we were 50 years ago. Right. But in relative terms, things are evening out. Things are evening out. And that's how it has historically been. At the end of World War II, every other industrialized country on Earth was absolutely devastated. So, yeah, the U.S. economy accounted for like 50, 60 percent of all manufacturing output. And, you know, we were kings of the world. Mm -hmm. And we had a whole generation of people brought up on this feeling, Joe Biden among them. Right. And I just worried that they just don't understand that, like, the project of this new American se of this new century, in my mind, is convincing our national security military establishment that, like, it is nothing like the last one. It's just not. And if the debacles that we have been through in the last 20, 30 years have not shown you that, then I, I fear for everyone in the world, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, talking about debacles for the last 20 years, uh, we can we can kind of move on to the Afghanistan question, because recently the Taliban had said that uh, they, they declared China as their... Uh, strongest Principal ally. ally or strongest ally. Yeah, I don't, I don't I really know what to make of that. Is. I don't even know what that really even means. But perhaps you can just talk to us a little bit about the China and Taliban relationship and where you think that might be headed. Okay, I think this one's pretty straightforward. China, long term, would like some lithium and copper from Afghanistan. They'd like the situation to settle down. They share a very narrow, narrow land border with Afghanistan. And right now, they are sending a strong message about uh, Uyghur Muslim uh, right. terrorists who, mm -hmm. who are in the country. And China is making it clear that, like, okay, look, we're not going to have a problem so long as you kill any of them that you find. And the Taliban is like, okay, this seems reasonable. We can do that. And China's like, okay, then we'll, uh, we'll be good. We'll see how things turn out. And, like, honestly, that's, that's the correct way to play this at this point. Like, uh, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how what Afghanistan looks like. Uh, the first time around, uh, the Taliban didn't control the whole country. You guys know, civil war, civil war, right. you know, coups. When when the they had they had almost been on the verge of finally taking control of the whole country, sort of. By the time the U.S. rolled in and just blew them away in 2001, so right. it'll be interesting to see after they consolidate if they're going to be able to manage the state in a responsible and appropriate manner, uh, if they can make the necessary deals um, internally, that is. So, yeah, because they, they do have a lot of mineral wealth, but uh, the terrain is, uh, boy. Impossible might be the word you're looking for. Yeah, Good good yeah. word, impossible. And here's the, here's the other thing then, Pakistan. Pakistan is the key here. As always with Afghanistan, Pakistan is the key. Because you're not taking whatever minerals you want out of Afghanistan over land. I've given a lot of thought about this. Like, first of all, <laughs> you've got you're gonna take that stuff all the way to the east coast of China. Like that's so inefficient over land, that's so inefficient. Not to mention, like, any terrorist, any Uyghur terrorist or whoever, one, you know, one explosion. You know, one explosion. That's all it takes. You can't cover that much rail or pipeline with soldiers all the time, especially when you right. can just fly a drone packed full of explosives into it. So it's going to have to go down into Pakistan and go over water. Boy, uh, the biggest concern I have for the region right now isn't directly related to Afghanistan. It's Pakistan because there's going to probably, there already is, but there's going to be a huge inflow of refugees probably. And Absolutely. 
and Pakistan is already really struggling, boy, that that to me is is the biggest question right now. Is is, is Pakistan going to be able to keep it together, keep things under control? You know, they're a nuclear armed state. Oh boy, it's run by the military, of course. Like the civilian government is is literally just a figurehead. So, right. It's uh, yeah. So, but yeah, let's let's talk let's talk let's talk uh, the Pax Americana, right? Let's talk the unipolar moment and the debacle it has been, um, okay. because lately every publication is just the Economist is my favorite because they've been doing a whole series about like what went wrong, what went wrong. And they're inviting all your favorite oh, yeah, hawkish yeah. people, like uh, the the one uh, H.R. McMaster's. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, they had Kissinger write one, and they had, like, where they just John Bolton, you- come on on. <laughs> John Bolton. No, the first person ABC had was Liz Cheney, was the first person that ABC had on to talk about Afghanistan, was Liz Cheney. Yeah. Well, and- you know, her dad did predict exactly what would happen if we went into yeah. the Middle East, yeah. and he did it anyway. So, like, he does have a lot of foresight. Maybe he passed that on to her. Maybe she's got a lot of perspective on, on how to... How to see that mess? Maybe her per, her, pers- her perspective was as bad as you can possibly imagine. It was just well, it's our strategic strength is gonna be lacking in our allies, and there's terrorists, and the Taliban did on nine eleven. Like just you know, just speaking absolute nonsense. Um, but here, but here's something I I pulled this from a, an article from um, responsible from from Quincy Institute. Um, so for the first time since the question was asked in the early 1980s, the Chicago Council of Global Affairs found that most Americans support sending U.S. troops to fight Taiwan if it is attacked. So that's kind of part of the whole uh, narrative that you know the U.S. is ready to combat China if need yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the media is trying to scare them. These publications are trying to scare them. Like, that is what it's for. I mean... You have to convince people that there's a reason they should do this stuff. Like, so they they convinced the United States that Afghanistan and Iraq were the reasons we got hit on 9-11. And people were like, yep, it's right. Like, the American people don't have a lot of time on their hands. You know, they get home from work, they flip on the TV, or they flip open their newspaper or their smartphone. They read a few articles, you know, but, like, they're not really digging too deep into it. They got a lot going on, you know. They're, they're I, you know... I, I understand. I understand why most people don't know more about these things and are very easily terrified into acquiescence over things that are none of our business. I mean, Taiwan is none of our business. It just isn't. Yeah, yeah most people don't want to spend their day running over foreign policy papers and being like, oh, well, uh, well, uh, you know, the history of uh, Al-Qaeda, actually, like most people just don't. And you can't blame them for not having that interest because it doesn't really involve them. Not at all. They have terrible elites. They have terrible, avaricious, power-hungry elites. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the institutional structure that produces them. Obama wasn't a particularly evil guy, but he did absolutely awful things. Awful things. I mean, he made policy. Obama seems to me like, you know, not a particularly, you know, bad, like, not a bad, terrible guy, but like, he went ahead and made decisions that the institutional structures provided for him that killed, you know, I don't know. How many people have died in uh, Libya and Syria? Too Man, many. I, the estimates are all over the place. It's a lot of people. It's impossible to, possible to tell. You know, the world will 
never really know. But I mean, I, I, I suppose in Syria, it's probably around a half million people at least. Um, like Syria being probably the biggest war in the 21st century and then Libya. I mean, Libya is a smaller country than Syria. So Libya is probably, I don't know, 50,000. I mean, Yemen right now is at, at the very least up to 100,000. And that's very conservative. The the Yeah, we're still sorry for empowering Iran by putting a Shiva chauvinist government in place of Saddam. Yeah, so the most recent issue of foreign affairs here just arrived in my mailbox a couple of days ago. Who won the war on terror is the cover? Iran. Iran won the war on terror. Oh, really? The oh, really? end. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. The whole idea was we're going to box Iran in and then we're going to get Iran. And at the end of the day, the U.S. spent, let's see, what did the what did the, what did they say the... Where is it? I wrote this number down because I just could not. I mean, it was obviously very believable. Six point four trillion, according to the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, we spent six point four trillion dollars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Hmm. Boy, and just made a huge mess of things, right? Far less safe than we were before nine eleven. Well, Al Qaeda before nine eleven was a couple hundred guys. Now there's a bunch of different Al Qaeda's. We funded some of them. Uh, Obama actually funded some of them in Syria as part of the I'm so sorry to the Saudi Arabians, right? Yeah, but that, that's uh, but we killed ISIS though. Oh right, yeah. After we helped create <laughs> ISIS to get Iran to help Saudi, you know, then it got too big, too strong. Then we had to go fight them again and go back to the you know Shia militias in Iraq that we realized retrospectively it was a mistake to begin with to be with them. And it's just like, this This to me is like, okay, this is why I don't think we should have an interventionist foreign policy. And like, you know, they throw the, oh, you're an isolationist, you know, like you're mm. some kind of 1930s, you want the Nazis to take over. No, I really am concerned about the fact that the blood of millions and millions of people are on the, the U.S. government's hands. I'm not going to say the people's hands, although we did elect the government and, you know, pay very little attention and don't hold them accountable for anything. But in our name, in the name of our safety... Trillions of dollars were spent killing millions of innocent people in the name of a strategy that was as stupid as it was short-sighted. Yeah. And Obama didn't make it better. Obama leaned into George Bush's strategy. And, like, he thought he had learned the mistakes of the Bush administration, and he thought, I'll do the opposite thing that Bush did. But just because you do the opposite of what they did because it was wrong doesn't automatically mean doing the opposite is the better solution. Right. They just made the problem worse, and then they reversed course, started doing the opposite of the opposite of what they were doing, which just made it even things. more worse. Right. Like, right. we do not, and here's what it is. We are so, look at a globe, look at a map, look at the United States. Who, th who could possibly ever threaten the homeland? Aliens. Okay, aliens. Okay, I'll take aliens. Okay. <laughs> yeah, aliens. But we don't need to be in the Middle East to fight aliens. Right. To prepare right. for the alien invasion. Right. Like, hey, hey, the lizard people are here already, and they're already a threat. So we need to arm ourselves against the lizard people. They shapeshift. They shapeshift. Yeah, I, I hear you. I'm concerned. We need to spend more. <laughs> That's the reason for a, a tighter surveillance state, too. Right. If they shapeshift. And never, you biometric never scanners at everything. Right. They should have right. all of our stuff. Yeah. No, so I look at the United States, and it's like, here's the scoop. Your foreign policy... Our foreign policy, not ours, our elite's foreign policy 
is based on either a, a, a still unipolar understanding of the world that is just not true anymore, mm. or like this kind of like um, Ian Bremmer described it. Who I, I he's a smart guy. I don't I don't agree with all, all, everything he writes, but I, I do think he frames the questions in the correct way, even if I don't agree with all of his conclusions. But a moneyball style foreign policy. They're like we're just so smart and so clever that we're just going to pick our spots and get it exactly right, and it's going to all work out in our favor. No, because we have such a huge margin for error in our foreign policy. Like, we just royally screwed up the Middle East, and, like, we're pretty okay here. Yep. Yep. Honestly, like, we're pretty okay. We lost what? How many people did we lose in Iraq, in, in total? Like, um, between servicemen and contractors, like 6,000. Yeah, you can include contractors, yeah. Yeah, and then, um, I mean, that doesn't include the veteran suicides, which is, I'm not even sure what the number is. I think it's we somewhere, just had Matt somewhere Ho between on like the, 30. On the, on the podcast yeah, we just had Matt Ho on our, in our show. And, oh, yeah, I listened to that. That was terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was terrible. Oh, it was a great podcast, but yeah, the, the veteran suicides, yeah, it's terrible. But, but my point is, in 20 years of conflict, I mean... You know, obviously every death is a tragedy, but it's, it's really not that many people. And the military is so cordoned off from most of society. Like, when World War II happened, they drafted you, you, there was rationing, and you were buying war bonds. You felt that war every single day. They, the media went months without talking about Afghanistan or Iraq. And mm-hmm. we were still there, you know, still spending tons of money. And so for me, I just look at it as if there are no consequences for making mistakes in foreign policy, you're going to have a bad one. You're going to have a sloppy one. And you're not going to care who it hurts. As long as in the end you can spin it that like, yeah, this basically worked out okay for us. And you can like retrospectively, you know, like for example, uh, the Vietnam War now. You know, even people like Noam Chomsky will say that like, actually, strategically, the Vietnam War was a total success. You blew the country apart, killed millions of people. Nobody else in the region wanted to be communist after that. Sure, you didn't achieve your total maximum strategic aim, which was uh, putting your proxy government in the South in charge of the whole country. That would have been the ideal scenario as far as U.S. uh, military and security planners were concerned. But nobody else in the region had any interest in taking that route after that. Mm -hmm. Well, that is the conservative justification I always hear. Well, you know, if we didn't go into Vietnam, then, you know, more states uh, in Asia would have fell to communism. So we had to teach them a lesson and it worked. Yeah, which to me is just wildly immoral. Like, Yeah, it's evil, but they're like, it worked. Yeah, like we have no business dictating other countries' foreign policy. Like just, in, just like in, in Latin America, you know, in Central and South America. I mean, you can, you can rattle them off probably, but like the number of coups, interventions, paramilitary groups that we've fun- I mean, just there's so much blood that was spilled in the name of interfering in domestic political uh, concerns that were none of our business, none of our business at all. And I, I honestly think if the American public were like sat down and explained like word for word, like, look, this is the cost of what this is. This is what it, this is what it means to be an imperialist. This is what the American empire cost in blood. And you made them read the accounts of babies getting cut out of women, you know, I don't think that the American people would stomach it for, for a minute. I don't. Because most people are, like, pretty good, decent human beings. But the costs of empire are hidden from them. Hidden well, costs. I used to be all about this stuff. I mean, I mean when, I was, when I was younger, I mean, I was 7th um, grade when 9-11 happened. All throughout my teenage years, I was like, 
yeah, this is great. This is this is like um, you know they all deserve it. This is a, a revenge that is justified from American foreign policy. These guys all were responsible for 9/11. Then I grew up and realized that you know the ideas that you have for the most part when you're a teenager are really really stupid. And um, when I started actually reading accounts of uh, just numbers, really, like I saw body tallies, like, wow, that, that many people died due to this war? I think that number alone is enough to, to change someone's perspective, because that was certainly one of the things that changed my perspective. Um, but going back to China, and I'm going to try to tie this back in, because... Um, when it comes to like communism, I feel like that in the case of China, um, when, you know, Mao's strategy to, um, you know, kind of concentrate on the countryside to, um, you know, uh, enforce or get his Marxist communist plan going, concentrating, you know, shifting his plan from like labor unions to like country peasants. Um, and then like Vietnam in the same kind of uh, spirit, you know, um, I think most of these people who are, are not ideologically driven, you know, they kind of just see communism as a plan that means like sharing the wealth and it's also anti-imperialism. So I think that actually drove a lot of these countries to communism, just, you know, colonialism in general, not necessarily because they were reading Marx. Absolutely. I mean, communism got intertwined with anti-colonialism and economic nationalism. You're absolutely right. And, you know, they're, they're, all of the, it wasn't a hegemonic block of like communism, you know, there, there was a lot of difference and in, in, from party to party, uh, state to state. And, you know, some of them were very Marxist, some of them were Stalinist, you know, Mao was a Stalinist, Leninist, you know, and then Maoism became its own thing. And, but yeah, uh, and, and it is it is understandable. I mean, like, look what happened in Iran. Why, why is Iran the big bad guy, right? Because Mossadegh wanted to uh, use the oil that Iran had uh, to help the people of Iran instead of enriching uh, Western oil companies. And that was just totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. If, if in your mind, communism, socialism is wrapped up in, like, anti-imperialism like sure it makes perfect sense it makes perfect sense like we're working so hard and all the wealth is getting sucked away to some other part of the world and there's just a few obvious puppets on top of this who are you know oppressing us and you know getting rich themselves yeah it makes absolutely perfect sense yeah i would have been a communist if i had been one of those countries (laughs) well unfortunately with the the outcome of that you know a lot of folks out there that listen that might be of the communist persuasion might be saying that, oh, real communism hasn't been tried yet. Uh, barring that, putting that aside, you know, uh, a country like China, which we're talking about. We get that a lot. About, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we really do. Yeah, I get that a lot. And I, um, and I honestly, sometimes, we like real communism has, they'll get, uh, people will get, because we have a pretty diverse, you know, we have an anti-war message for the most part. And you know, we have like a mix of libertarians and a lot of prog- a lot of progressive left leftists listen to this as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, sometimes we get everything get kind of like you're not given like you're you're uh, you're just talk you're just using talking points when describing socialism or, you know, you're just um, you're not really explaining what socialism is. And you're just, mm-hmm. you know, sticking to your capitalist 
Uh, I don't even uh, know what that stuff means because socialism is such a diverse ideology. I know exactly. There are so many different kinds. Yeah. It's like you don't, you're not talking about socialism. It's like what are you talking about? What kind of socialism do you exactly. want to hear me talk exactly. about? Right. You want to hear me talk right. about some anarcho syndicalism? Right. Let me talk about right. state socialism. What do you want to hear me talk about? You know what I mean? And a lot of times they're like, uh, you know, socialism. you know the the, the, the <laughs> like good socialism. You know, the good Come. Yeah, right. Or they'll, no, they'll they'll use Che or like you know like Denmark. Yeah. Denmark's not socialist. Anyway, going back to China. Um, so the outcome of a lot of these socialist or communist projects often doesn't pan out in the way that would be helpful or in the way that the people who, you know, you said yourself, hey, I'd be down for communism if I was put in that position. You know, for a lot of the people who were down for communism in that moment, it didn't necessarily pan out super well for everyone. Some of the stats that you brought up earlier were, you know, the GDP uh, spread. So there's obviously a bunch of wealth disparity, right? They, they have a ton of money, right? But if you, you know, organize it across, you know, all of the, you know, people per capita, it's like 10K versus our 65K. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And that's just what they report, right? Exactly. That's just what they're reporting. So so there's obviously poverty, right? There's obviously food um, uh, issues. I know that you wrote in your article um, on a per capita basis that uh, China has less arable agricultural land than Saudi Arabia, which obviously means they need to import a shit ton of their own food or heavily process like chemically, you know, uh, all of their food stuff. So there's poverty, monetary poverty, there's food poverty, there's income inequality, the whole range of issues that affect at this point potentially billions of people in China, right? Because they have, you know, a lot, well, not billions, millions of people. Um, so I'm wondering a bit about, you know, you you also wrote in your article that the CCP faces multiple permanent secessionist dangers far from its core. And I'm wondering if the kind of failures of communism in China is driving any serious secessionist movements in China. So who might they be if that's the case? And, you know, what's what's up with that? Okay, perfect. So let, let's distinguish then. When China started to succeed was when they moved away from Maoism, when they moved away from communism, and they embraced a form of state. Really, it was like state capitalism, mm -hmm. state socialism, you know, the lines are blurred. I guess it'd probably be better to call it state socialism. But, they, you know, private ownership started to proliferate. They started to loosen things up, liberalize. Uh, that was the Deng era, right? And Hu Jintao and all of that through the 90s, joining the WTO, um, making a lot of the right decisions. Making a lot of the right decisions. But uh, there, it wasn't a smooth road in terms of 
security in terms of the CCP because the CCP elites don't care. I don't see any reason to think they care more about the Chi- the average Chinese person than their position. Hmm. There, I don't know that there's any reason to think any elite anywhere values the life, the, the well-being of the average person more than their position of power that they have worked their whole life to obtain. And that, you know, especially in China, you know, losing your position of power in China, that's not like, you know, getting voted out of office here, probably, right? This could get messy. Not mm. sure what would happen, right? Not, not mm. entirely clear. Um, so uh, China started to succeed precisely when it moved away from communism. And she, uh, it's, it's a complicated situation because a lot of people see uh, Xi Jinping as moving them back towards the past and more towards, you know, central state control. He didn't, I don't think, based on my reading, I've read, you know, a couple dozen books on China, bulls and bears both, but uh, I think it was uh, George Magnus made the point that when he first came to office, she wanted to keep going with the liberalizing reforms, Um, but that a combination of crises, some of which I I touched on in here, made it made it so that he kind of had to go the way he's going. And like he keeps trying different things. So like I, I really, you know, I give him a lot of credit. I mean, if you have to have a, you know, dictator, I mean he's not the worst you could do in terms of like managing things, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I don't know I don't know if, how much of a plaudit that is. Like if you have to have a dictator. <laughs> I mean he's not the worst you could do. He's very aware. He's very active. He understands. He understands. Like for example, you talked about uh wealth inequality. The eastern part of the country is so much wealthier than the western part of the country. This is obvious, right? It's a coastal region. This is where mm-hmm. all the economic activity is. People want to go there, right? Well, in China, there was the, their, their welfare system, the hukou system, was very poorly originally set up. If you left your home province, you got cut off from the social security net. Hmm. So if you, and, ca- and we, we know labor mobility is so important mm-hmm. to developing a dynamic economy. But if you're like, okay, let's say, uh, you know, you're, you've got medical care and, uh, you know, a few other benefits. So, but you've, you're, you got basically no economic prospects here. So you can leave and try and get a job somewhere else. But now whatever extra money you're making there, you're going to have to sock away in order to pay out of pocket for, let's say medical or, you know, whatever it is, right? All the things that you've sacrificed. And so they've been trying to reform that, but the problem is these systems are managed by local authorities and Xi Jinping is not all powerful. He has to make compromise. He has to make deals within the party, within the, the, the wider bureaucracy with local government officials. Local government officials don't want to be paying more benefits to more migrant workers. They'd love for them to come. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, we don't actually want to like pay your benefits and stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know, and they've made efforts to reform that, and it's been a back and forth process. But that's just one of those examples where, you know, it's it's not not all cut and dry. It's it's very uneven. Just like liberalizing currency reforms, all that stuff. You know, she has been. It's hard to keep up with everything because he tries so many different things, um, and and there's a lot going on. And China's huge. The economy has a lot of moving parts. You know, they have their own shadow banking system, which is a, a whole other thing. Right. Uh, right. So, so yeah. are, are there specific, are, are there like, specific elements like elements or, or regions or, or, regions or, or, or groups or, of oh, people right. that are they're yeah. looking to yes. succeed? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Sorry, yeah, uh, let me see here. Let me flip through my notes here. Cause I had, I had written that down uh, somewhere here. Oh, well, whatever, I'll just tell you. Uh, so, um, obviously, the Tibetan problem, I'm just going to phrase these in, in the manner of problems. Mm -hmm. I'm the CCP leadership. This is a problem. Tibetans, Uyghurs, Sichuanese, Shanghai, all problems. Hong Kong, problem. These are all problems, mm -hmm. right? These are all potential secessionist problems for different reasons. The first two are ethno-religious problems. Right? That's why you've got to lock them up in vocational schools and brainwash them. Right. Right. On the other side, you've got all these economic and tech elites who don't want anything to do with Western and Central China. They want to be engaging more with South Korea, with Japan, with the United States, with Europe, because that's where the money is. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's why the, te the, the whole tech sector cracked down. Now, this started a year and a half ago when Jack Ma opened his mouth inexplicably i couldn't even believe he did this he criticized the chinese communist party's uh tech regulation policy mm -hmm. and it was like oh boy this is not going to turn out well and since then it has been a war on the tech sector mm -hmm. and it's not about regulation you know like i get these like bulletins like uh, we're monitoring china's uh regulatory crackdown for potential uh, portfolio issues and uh, you know we'll keep you informed it's like it has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with showing these coastal economic elites who's really in charge. Hmm. That's it. Is that why they uh, did the uh, video game lockdown where the kids can't play video games but for more than three hours a week? I don't know that that... It, I mean, I'm not sure how much that'll hit the, the pocketbook of the tech sector. It probably will. A bunch of stocks did drop like 6%, like a lot of them. A lot of stocks. Yeah, there, there are a lot of them. Yeah, definitely. And it could be. But I also think part of it is, you know, the, the, the CCP likes controlling people's lives and they have a vision for how the country should be. And she is like a 60 year old man. How many 60 year old men do you know who are like, yeah, kids should be playing lots of video games. Like how many 60 year old men do you know who are like, if they could, they would erase video games from history. Right. Well, it's spiritual. Oh, yeah. in a position. Oh, yeah. That's what yeah. they call it. And she's in a position where you can do that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he's definitely probably just looking at it like, why are all these kids addicted to? I mean, the wording was spiritual opium. Yep. That was the wording. The Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's tried to create this whole mythology about who China was and is and the century of humiliations turned us into, you know, this oppressed people who can't raise their heads up. And, you know, it's time for us to take our place and realize who we are and reconnect with what real china is and like and it starts by stopping playing video games <laughs> what's 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 real what's real china though because i guess the myth for a lot of people is that you know china was always has always been some unitary state but china as a unitary state um as we know it is the exception not the rule like a lot of chinese history that's has always been broken out into warring states like you know after um the in the early 1920s it was ran by warlords or early 1910s like their warlord period uh whatever i mean uh, they've had several they had like the warring states period they had yeah. the multiple yeah. emperors period mm -hmm. you know i mean uh no I, i'm pulling up the actual ones i want to give you the the actual correct let me see uh okay so like china air quotes here uh you know approximately 2000 years old approximately but really only 300 of those years were the borders of today's China more or less what they were and controlled by a Han-dominated government. Right, right. So 300 years, and they weren't contiguous. So 
it's 15% of the time, <laughs> you know, it's nothing. It's not big. Like you yeah. need to do some serious mythologizing and the CCP does a great job of it. A great job. They do these big, you know, celebrations and just, it was, I don't know if you guys saw the, the, the celebration they did this last year, but they had all these great uh, performances about China's history. And, you know, it's phenomenal myth-making, phenomenal myth-making. And that's important. That's important. One, I think, I think the loss of a unifying myth uh, has been really detrimental to American uh, political order, quite honestly. I'm still waiting for the uh, myth of uh, the human race as a uh, as a thing, so that we can all unify under that when we need to fight the aliens. Yeah, we'll need to because if they can, you know, do interstellar travel, they're gonna like liquefy us in an instant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. You know what it kind of reminds me of, or makes me think of? So um, it kind of makes me think of like Japanese nationalism. Like, mm-hmm. do you think that it could compete? Like Japanese nationalism, not now. Like Japanese nationalism in like the 1920s and 1930s is that kind of like the process that they're doing because it seems like they're going through like the nation state building process but like what i what i like to say is that they're building a nation state with a blunt hammer in broad daylight um yeah i'm i I coined that i didn't steal that from anyone by the way, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was very proud of myself. Like they're building a nation state, but, but um, Henry uh, from Bro History once said that China is. I did. <laughs> if I read, if I read, if, if that comes up and I read that subconsciously, that I made that, that I like, I took it subconsciously. I'd be so disappointed. Someone will definitely be like, "Oh, you took it from this book." I'm like, they're they're not ah. really doing much of anything that other nation states didn't do. Yeah, like yeah. the only difference is. France killed all its, you know, other ethnic, you know, competitors, you know, 1500 years ago. Right. 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 Like, that's why the Franks had France. Like, they killed off all of They drove off all of the other competitors and then, you know, started developing societies and, you know. So, yeah, I mean, they're doing it in broad daylight. They're doing it in real time and in the age of the Internet where we can all see what they're doing, you know. And it's not an exceptional process. Like state building is pretty horrific i mean i i don't we don't have time to go into like how the american state was built but like (laughs) it was it was it was bloody yeah it was bloody you know it's it's a settler colonial nation state like it just is what it is so yeah i mean especially ones yeah like the ones this nation state that take that take like this kind of um i don't know would you say that they take like an ethnic identity like a han ethnic identity in their nation state building because you can see that in like early 1920s or or or, or not early 1920s before that like serbia for example and you know pro, uh, pre-world war one they were kind of a nasty kind of ethnic nation state that was very belligerent like right off coming right out of the um you know, uh, being a province of the Ottoman Empire. And, you know, they really thought that all this land surrounding land, uh, the phrase they used was any place where a Serb was, was Serbia or any, I think they used like maybe an Orthodox church. Forget the exact um, um, uh, phrasing of that. But I mean, their nationalist movements were very, very hyper. Um, So do you think that they kind of have, like China has like kind of like this Han centric, type uh ethnic nationalism um character to it definitely yeah i mean they, they won't even acknowledge that Sichuanese is a separate language <laughs> even though no linguist would ever say that it wasn't you know 
yeah, it's easier to build a nation state that way when you have one dominant ethno-religious group. And the Serbs, uh, you know, they weren't unique. I mean, that was the Wilsonian vision. And it was just a carryover of, of the, the spirit that dominated the 19th century uh, in Europe. You know, self-determination for ethno-linguistic uh, and religious states. So um, there, was, there was a little bit more tolerance by that point in terms of, like, religious minorities. Um, we weren't in full, like, you know, Reformation, 30 Years War type stuff. But, uh, yeah. And it seems like a lot of the clashes between, like, the Han Chinese and, and like, Uyghurs, you know, have been just, like, full-out kind of just race riots or race fights. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what to say to that. I mean, the CCP have the power to do what they want. Uh, the Uyghurs try to resist. That is very admirable. Uh, I would certainly, if I were in their position as well, but at the end of the day, um, whether or not Thucydides meant us to take this as a statement of realpolitik or, uh, you know, sort of a moralizing lesson, uh, the strong do what they will and the weak will suffer what they must. And that, you know, if we're going to do what? Sorry, I I didn't catch that. Yeah, I was just going to say fair point, fair point. Yeah. And like, what are, what are we going to do? What, what? are we supposed to do something every time like Tibetan, like I would never support the Chinese policies toward the Tibetans or the Uyghurs, but that doesn't mean that I want to live in, 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 in a fiscal military imperialist state devoted to trying to intervene all over the world and just making a total mess of things. And that's why I want the myth of us grand strategy to just die, to just die. Like even in the unipolar moment, we made such a horrifying mess of things. Maybe that's the good thing that China, maybe it would be good if China were really, really strong and, you know, U.S. elites needed to focus really hard on making good foreign policy decisions. I don't know, because during the unipolar moment, it was just mistake after mistake after mistake mm-hmm. after mistake. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I wanted to touch on this really quickly because I know you guys devote some of your time to this. Um, but, like, there's been this effort to, like, really lionize the first Bush. Ever since W left office, I mean, you can find it in like, like really progressive, like Simon Reed Henry. He's a historian. He wrote a book called Empire of Democracy in the last couple of years. Richard Haas, and he worked for Bush. Uh, ben Rhodes, who you know him, you know, just this attempt to be like, you know, back in the good old days, we had very intelligent foreign policy. Like when Bush Sr. was in office and it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? The thing is, if you say it often enough and you say it loud enough, it's true. For all intents and purposes, it's just true. And people will act on the basis of believing it's true. And all these BS articles about like, we've learned a lot from Afghanistan and Iraq. And now you see, next time we won't do this. And now we know to do that. And it's like, even if I believed you actually learned these lessons, you'll make the same mistakes or totally new ones in a new situation. Because your attention span is so short, like, You had barely even started the Afghanistan intervention before. It was like, oh, more war. Can we go to Iraq now? Uh, Can we go to Syria? Like, you haven't even finished your first war. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, come on. You have no idea what's going on. And you don't care. Not you personally, but, like, they don't care. Right. They don't have to care. Unless, you know, people make them care. And so if you have a public discourse that says, once our interventions were very smart, like the first Iraq war, that was genius. And it's like, yes, it 
it really was genius how we helped Saddam into power and then, uh, you know, uh, created an oppressive state in Iran and then encouraged him to go fight Iran in like a World War One style death match and uh, then uh, encouraged him to solve the Kuwaiti problem on his own and then changed our minds and uh, booted him out and starved a half million children to death in Iraq because... We couldn't make up our mind about what we wanted to do with Saddam because first we, you know, Bush encourages the, uh, you know, the Shia and the Kurds to rise up against Saddam, but then changes his mind because he realizes, oh, wait a minute, uh, those are the Iranians' friends. Oh, wait, uh, don't want to do that. Um, you know what? We'll just leave it on simmer. We'll just let it sit here. <laughs> leave it on simmer. <laughs> we'll just leave it on simmer. You know, and then well, at least they, Clinton at least they were smarter than what Bush the Elder. and Bosnia. It's just it's Bush is myth younger, after Bush myth is after younger. myth, and it's just. I just feel like, you know, I, I just feel like most Americans are decent human beings and that they would not stomach the kind of adventurism and interventionism abroad that our government, that our national security establishment and that our military industrial complex, that these institutions will continue to just churn out. And maybe, maybe for the time being, like Vietnam, the U.S. public won't want to put troops on the ground anywhere else. That is not going to stop them for an instant. Funding proxies, selling weapons, and like, that's all on us. That's all on us. Because we do nothing to stop them. Yeah. And other countries, they look at us and they're like, wait, don't they elect their government? Oh, well, they must be okay with this stuff. You know? So well, doesn't China use that as a, as, a, as, a, as a club? Whenever like we use criticize China, they're like, well, at least we don't like invade other countries and kill people. Destroys our credibility. It destroys our credibility. We try and criticize Russia for something, and Russia just has a whole laundry list of stuff that they can list off. Putin's like, you do, you fund ISIS. You create ISIS. <laughs> you create ISIS. See how they don't bomb these trucks? They're ISIS. They bomb, like... And he's right. He's right. We're literally... I mean, not like... I don't know if it's like explicitly like on purpose. I don't know that anyone ever put this down on paper, but like... The fact that we have this little area cordoned off right here is preventing the final defeat of, like, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Iraq forces in the Middle East, you know, uh, just because we don't want, you know, Iranian influence and stuff like that. And it's just like, what is going on here? Like, why? Why? You know, we, we needed to go after Assad to get Iran, you know? And it's like, what did Iran ever do to the United States? You know, but well, if you ask the average American and they're like, oh, Iran's very dangerous. Big threat. Big threat. Oh, yeah. And it's like, well, if I were Iran, I would want nukes. They do. <laughs> well, basically, basically, you know, if you're talking to a war hawk or a very anti-Iran person, you know, they're going to list them off like, all right, come on. Here's Kobark Towers, which is debatable. You know, it, we don't. That wasn't Iran. I know, but it, they'll use Kobark Towers. They're, um, they'll use Kobar towers, and then they'll pretty, basically use any Shia who killed somebody, an American in Lebanon. Well, that was all Iran. I mean, but then, then, any Shia who killed then Israel is shouldn't have Iran. created Hamas and, you know, invaded Lebanon and got Hezbollah created and stuff. Like, you know, I mean, bin Laden was explicit, you know, and about why he did what he did. And apart from, you know, stationing troops in Saudi Arabia to keep antagonizing and torturing the Iraqi people following the first Gulf War, it was support for, uh, you know, just carte blanche support for Israel's policies in the Middle East. That's you know, right. Right. literally bombing a U.N. camp full of women and children. Like, are you kidding me? Of course, China doesn't listen to us. 
just like they won't listen. Like, let's say they invade Taiwan and the U.S. says, oh, but wait a minute. Uh, the U.N. says you're not supposed to do that. And they're going to be like, oh, right. Because you, you asked the U.N. before you went into Iraq, right? <laughs> oh, right. Good. So can it. Cool. Like, cool. They've got no interest. We have no moral authority because of these policies. And there's no reason for it. It doesn't make us safer. Terrorist attacks have gone magnitudes of orders higher. Far more terrorists now than before the war on terror, obviously. But Joseph, I listened to this interview um, a while back, and it was Mike Pompeo, and um, his conviction about how much he cares about the Muslims in Zhengzheng in northwestern China. I don't know. Something about him. I trusted him. I do, too. I do, too. Yeah, I believe There's something him about him. I trust him. When they're in China. Yeah, when they're in China. Yeah. And that's when they're in China. They're, <laughs> when they're so in funny. China, those people's lives are, are precious. How dare you? How dare you? And it just rings so hollow to the rest of the world. But my 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 real concern is that they're manufacturing anti-Chinese sentiment. Like you can literally look at the public polling data, like increasingly, like over 60 percent of Americans hold unfavorable views of China are increasingly OK with fighting for Taiwan against China. Even though they couldn't explain even the barest minimum of the history there. Yeah. Because they've gotten convinced that like U.S. credibility is on the line. And it's like, we never agreed to protect them. Like Carter threw that out. And the, 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 the new Taiwan act was purposely, like you said, uh, you know, strategic ambiguity, you know, but now we're, we're pursuing this policy. I love the euphemisms that they use, you know, the, 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 the obfuscating language. Now we're, we're going to engage in uh, strategic engagement with China. This is just a euphemism for saying, we would love to just make you do what we want, but we can't. So there are certain things we just have to deal with you on. Like, that's all that means. Right. Like, they're setting up a new containment strategy. The first thing Biden's foreign policy team did when they got into office in their Defense Department was head straight to East Asia and visit India, South Korea, Malaysia. Japan, the Philippines. Remember the Philippines, uh, Duterte was making the big deal about like, I'm not the Americans patsy and you're going to get out of my country and stuff. Like foreign policy just had a piece uh, a couple weeks ago where it's like under the table, they're just like, but you know, this doesn't really change anything. You <laughs> this is just like domestic politics. You, you get, you understand like, of course, of course. I just have to you say that. The US going that. anywhere. <laughs> of course not. It's very expensive to have a massive Navy that can actually stand up to someone. Yeah. They don't want them going anywhere. You know, so it's 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 terrible. And, and I but I started off. I don't know if we were live yet, but um, I started off by saying that I really feel like we're at a moment right now where there's enough support. on the, There's an openness that in my lifetime I've never experienced to like talking about the isolationist position, like on the left and the right. Like, should we be doing any of this stuff? And of course, the hawkish establishment is like churning out the stuff to like make us terrified and like mm -hmm. think we need to like go save the world because we are the uh, what do they call it? the indispensable nation? Mm -hmm. That's what they call it, the indispensable nation. No one can provide the public goods we provide, you know, and I don't know. I, I really think the costs. John Kerry one time said uh, when he came back from Vietnam, like, how can you ask someone to have their son or daughter be the last person who dies from a mistake? Right. And I really hope that Afghanistan and Iraq are seared into the public consciousness. Well, here's because the thing. Because these didn't have to happen. The media has already 
kind of um, rewritten the narrative because now all of the history of the war in Afghanistan, it all boils down to the month of August and September. Like it all boils down to the month of August and Biden came in and man, the CNN and most mainstream presses, they basically, you felt like they, they were part of the Biden administration until he pulls out of Afghanistan, until he makes do. And, and honestly, I didn't, there was, it was, the withdrawal was a shit show. There were, obviously, it was very ugly looking. But you would have thought that he, you know, we were winning the war. And then all of a sudden Biden came in and just ruined it. The way that it's being covering. Yeah, I was reading, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal that uh, they were saying like, oh, well, this is just a piece of cake. All we need to do is carry on doing surgical strikes. And uh, all it's going to take to solve this problem is to do a few surgical strikes, a few special operations, and it'll all be cleared up. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, this is a legitimate piece that was published in one of the pillars of the American media. Like, what do you think we've been doing for the last eight years? Like, it'll always just be one more. It'll always just be one more. And I just look at East Asia. Those countries are going to be just fine. China is not going to lord it over them. Central Asia, uh, there's nothing they really want there except, you know, just access to materials. You know, they'll run the Belt and Road. They'll run their, you know, new Silk Road through there. It'll cost a ton of money. You know, probably it'll be targeted by, you know, some kind of terrorist attack at some point. You know, there'll be hitches. It'll work okay. It's not as efficient as obviously using using shipping. It's just way cheaper to ship things over water. But, you know, as far as like expanding beyond the South and East China Sea, like that won't happen. Well, after watching us do it for for 20 years or, I mean, much longer than that, they'd have to be really stupid to want to engage an empire. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why that the, you know, the, the Kindleberger trap, right? We're, we're declining. Right. Or we don't want to, you know, provide the public goods anymore. And China doesn't want to do it either. Right. Nobody wants to do that. It's expensive and terrible. Like nobody wants to provide these services. You know, if you want to call them services, that's, again, just how they're referred to in the literature. But yeah. And uh, so I don't know. We're, we're definitely uh, I, I do. I do know what you mean with the media trying to, like, rewrite things. But Trump literally came in and, like, just rewrote the platform of one of the major political American parties. Like Bernie Sanders, if he had if he had had his things together, like 2016 when he ran, well 2015, he was not prepared. He just wasn't prepared. He didn't think he was going to be in the game, and like all of a sudden he was in the game, and you know the DNC was sabotaging him behind the scenes and stuff. And like if he had been ready to play and ready to go, who knows how that would have turned out? Like the establishment's credibility after the wars in the Middle East, after the economic crisis, you know, yeah. The sluggish recovery. I, I definitely think there's a willingness now to talk seriously. I mean, Ian Bremmer, who is certainly not an isolate, he wrote a book basically outlining the choice, saying like, you know, isolationism, you know, it's not the option I would choose, you know. He's kind of more of an indispensable power guy. Mm -hmm. But he's like, you know, the case for isolationism isn't dumb, you know. The, it's actually funny because like uh, there's there's like a, a lot of like economic modeling that goes into like trade and stuff, but the bigger a country is, the more it produces and stuff, like the less overall it gains from trade. So like smaller countries gain a ton from trade, mm -hmm. but the bigger you are, actually the less you gain from trade. The marginal returns on trade are smaller. So like, you know, we've got plenty of, uh, you know, liquefied natural gas, lots of oil. We get most of our, our stuff from Canada and Mexico anyway. 
we've got a relatively young population. You know, I I can see it. I can see it. Like I'm I'm a free trader myself, but I, I can see it. I think that I think it makes sense. It's a choice. It's a choice. And it reminds me of that that Orwell essay, uh, "Shooting an Elephant," where he's an imperial policeman in Burma. And he realizes, he comes to realize, as he's confronted with this obligation because of the role that he is in as an imperial tool, uh, as an extension, as a representation of the British Empire, that he is actually a slave himself. And we can choose not to be tools. Like, choose not to be a tool. <laughs> we choose not, it is an option. Like, obviously, you know, like the F 35. Like, we're dealing with smart people. They spread the jobs out all over the country, mm. so your rep won't vote against me. Bernie Sanders voted for the program. Right. Right. Well, I don't want those jobs to leave Vermont. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, it's tough. Those are good, high-paying jobs, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's going to be built somewhere else. Manufacturing oh. jobs. Yeah. So, these are smart people. You know, these are smart people. They have a lot of money. There's a lot to lose. That's actually, <laughs> I thought like the best way to destroy the military industrial complex as an, cause I, I, you know, I'm an Austrian, um, uh, would be to go back on the gold standard. Think about it. You've got no elasticity in your money supply. Think about it. World war one comes, we suspend the gold standard. World war two comes, spend the gold standard. Vietnam and the welfare state had to get rid of it entirely. Like if you went back on the gold standard, you couldn't afford the military industrial complex. Not good, by a long shot. Good luck with that. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, we just did a, we just did a podcast on talking about um, Germany during World War One and all their spending and, and all their inflation and what eventually led to hyperinflation. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's all made possible with just uh, just the print and press hey, for making digital dollars. So so we're, we're we're coming up on well over an hour and a half, and I don't want to take up all your time, Joseph. I, I feel like we could sit here and talk for literally hours, and I hope that you can become a regular on the show because I, I value your opinions. Um, I have one last question about China, uh, and then I want to give you an opportunity to like you know plug anything that you uh, want to plug or uh, whatever you like, and and I wanted to talk just real quickly about tech because you know, tech is the future, and you know in, in our conversation here we've been talking about some constraints that China has with their productivity, uh, specifically economic productivity. But as, as you pointed out yourself, you know, China's been heavily investing in AI, quantum computing, space, you know, alternate energy, you name it. You know, so I'm wondering, do you think any of these developments could change the geopolitical calculus if they're able to get a considerable lead on any of these technologies? So going back to the entire conversation about how we think, you know, China's not really going to take over the world. Let's say they invent fusion energy or something crazy like that, right? How does that change? How does that change your mind? Or does it at all? Okay. So, all right. Let's say they create general AI or fusion technology or they master like um, space-based solar electrical power. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sure. That would change the calculation. Sure. Because then they have something everyone else needs. Sure. Sure. But for me, I always ask myself, who would I bet on? A centrally controlled state that is basically micromanaging the tech sector who won't let them experiment and do whatever they want. Um, which certainly it's not like in the United States they let them do whatever they want. But like it's been kind of a wild west, mm. you know, the tech era has mm -hmm. in the United States. And look at all the great stuff we've got. China right. stole all that stuff or bought it. You know, mm -hmm. by, by using like, you know, agreements with American firms like they didn't 
China has started generating some patents over the last few years, granted. But, like, I just ask myself, is a free, dynamic, liberal capitalist society going to make these inventions? Or is a state socialist monopoly going to produce these technologies? And I, I think probably from the way I phrased the question, you can guess my answer. Mm -hmm. I would bet on human freedom, creativity. Okay. Well, okay, Al so Gore created the internet. <laughs> it's a system of tubes, if you didn't know. Um, well, that was private when he did that. Um, <laughs> well, this is like, right. yes, all of right. course, like, you know, the U.S. military did do, like, GPS and started the internet and stuff. Like, so, like, yeah, but we have the basic tech already. Right. And, like, our tech sector is full of capital. We have more capital in our system than we know what to do. There's just tons of capital just sitting around. And investors are like, what should I do with this? Like, I don't know. Should we just burn it? I don't know. We could just light our cigars with it. Or maybe we could try just like filling up a Tesla. See how many hundred dollar bills we could fit in there. Like <laughs> we're ready. We're, we're ready. So the, the future is I think bright for our tech sector, as long as the government doesn't get too in really way. involved <laughs> in, in strangling it. So fair enough. Fair enough. Well, th um, this has been absolutely awesome. Henry, do you have any other questions? Yeah. Um, no, man, plug your stuff. Where can we find your work? Where can everyone who's listening find your stuff? Where are you write? Um, just plug whatever you need. You want to plug. You want to plug. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, well, I do a lot of my writing for the Mises Institute. Um, I publish like working papers on uh, like Sage Advance, uh, which is just a preprint site because um, the peer review process takes a really long time. Uh, so uh, I also put stuff on uh, my website, jsmwritings.com. Um, I started blogging uh, a while ago. I'm terrible about blogging though, because anytime I sit down, I have an idea in my head and I want to do it right. And when I do that, then, you know, I usually send it out to some publication somewhere. So uh, my blog is pretty, uh, pretty scant. It's probably like 10 listings there, but I'm really trying to put more stuff on there. Uh, maybe I'll do like some more commentary stuff, but no, what I would ask your listeners to do is to really think about the things we talked about today and ask themselves whether or not they want to be a part of what's going on and to like seriously call your reps call your senators like they believe it or not even though you know there's plenty of studies that say like u.s public opinion has like no impact <laughs> like it's it's really the only chance you've got like in terms of like getting in their ear telling them you're not okay with this kind of stuff like you just have to just got to do it so or not i'm a libertarian so do it don't do it it's your choice <laughs> love it all right, Joseph. Thank you so thank much you so for joining much, us Danny today. Murray, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate Yo, it. We want, we, Yo, I've had a great time talking to you. Yeah, we, this was a lot. This is a lot of fun. Um, well, we definitely want you on. Is 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 uh, if you ever want to just like brainstorm. If you're writing something and you just want to kind of like you know talk it talk out about first. it and just like kind of get <laughs> yeah. the ideas out here, feel free to to uh, use our our show to to do that because this, <laughs> this has been really fun and uh, very valuable. Um, Danny, anything else before we wrap this this one up? No, man. Thanks again, Joseph. All right. Everyone who's listening to this show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to help support this show is by rating and reviewing it. Um, and then you can also support us on Patreon as well. But thanks, everyone. Uh, we love you, and we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.